That's how our letter has been structured. But we've said that within this defense, within chapters 1 through 7, the last couple of chapters we've looked at have what we're calling proofs, where Paul is saying, hey, uh, me and my fellow workers are adequate to be a fragrant aroma of Christ that we saw in chapter 2 for this, this, and this reason. He said, we are adequate, whereas others are not because we don't peddle the word of God like others do. That was the first proof. He said, we're adequate because we are ministers of a new covenant, not an old covenant. And this new covenant has permanency. That was proof number two. Last week he said, we're adequate because we have a clear conscience and we minister before men and the sight of God. And he said, look at all the things that we go through because we love the gospel. We're willing to endure all this hardship and because of that, we have a clear conscience about what we say and speak in the sight of God. And he said, he kind of challenged his audience, said, you guys have to admit that when you see and hear what we preach, that it is truth. And so this morning, we're going to see the, the fourth and final proof, if you will, in this little mini breakout uh, section of his much larger defense. And he is going to talk about how we have an eternal home. He is adequate be considered a fragrant aroma for God and to be used by God to spread the knowledge of God everywhere he goes because he has a, a hope that is eternal and a home that is eternal. And so our song this morning and maybe a couple of the other ones will reference this new body that we're going to get in Christ Jesus and how we will all be raised just like Jesus was raised. So open to 2 Corinthians with me if you would. We're going to start in chapter 4 but we're going to bleed on through to chapter 5. And our first verse and our first section that we're going to look at is going to be verses 13 through 15. That'll be the first section. The second section we'll look at is going to be verses 16 through 18. And then lastly we're going to take verses 5 or uh, chapter 5 verses 1 through 10 as a as a chunk if you will. So last week, the final statement that we saw was verse 12. So he said, so death works in us, but life in you. In other words, after all of these things that we've told you and all these hardships that we've experienced, what that results in is that our bodies are getting beat up and we're going through trials and we're going through turmoil, but it is for the gospel. And as a result of that, there are people being saved. You are having life in Christ because of the persecution that we experience. And so he says in verse 13, But having the same spirit of faith, according to what is written, I believe, therefore I spoke. And he says, We also believe, therefore we also speak. Knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and will present us with you. In verse 15, For all things are for your sakes, that the grace which is spreading to more and more people may cause the giving of thanks to abound to the glory of God. Therefore, we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. So, if we look at back at verse 13 here for a second. But having the same spirit of faith, according to what is written, I believe, therefore I spoke. We also believe, therefore we also speak. Your text may look a little bit different graphically in your Bible there. Does it look like a quote? Does it, does it reference an Old Testament scripture that Paul is referring to? He is quoting David in Psalm 116. Go ahead and turn there with me if you would, please. Psalm 116, verse 
10. We're turning here for a reason. We get a little bit more information from David's quote that, that uh, Paul is, is speaking. Psalm 116, verse 10, David says, I believed when I said I am greatly afflicted. Now that's, that sounds a little bit different than what Paul said, right? Go ahead and flip back to 2 Corinthians. What Paul is revealing through his citation of King David, was that as a result of being afflicted, David understood that God was the one who rescued him. God was the one who restored him. God was the one who put David back together in his illness after his affliction. And David says, when I was afflicted, God healed me, God made me better, and so I spoke of God's goodness and I spread the news of God as the author and the creator and as the great physician and the one who put me back together and healed me. And so when Paul uses that quote here, he's doing something very, very similar. He's saying, after all of these afflictions that we've received, after all the persecution that I just told you about in verses 7 through 10 of chapter 14, God is the one who holds us together. He does not allow us to be completely crushed and destroyed. And therefore, we speak of his greatness. We speak of his goodness. Just like David did, we do the same. And what I think is beautiful about this is, as a New Testament believer, we are afflicted in a couple of different ways. We're afflicted spiritually because we have sin, right? We need a healer that deals with our spiritual affliction, which is a sin condition that we are born with. And I don't know that we in the the Western church necessarily... Uh, embrace the, the utter depravity that we exist in outside of the blood of Jesus. You say, what do you, what do you mean by that? Um, Michael and I had an exchange via email this week. Uh, Susan's father had forwarded an email to me with a, a website link, and it was really cool, and it was about the state of theology today, especially in America. And they had these categories of of people that they had interviewed and they were producing these statistics about the results. And it was all about believers and what believers in Western culture essentially see and view and what their theology and their position is on certain matters. And one was the category of evangelicals. And evangelicals, uh, more than 50% believe that people are inherently good but have some sin. The church today, evangelicals, believe that people are more or less good, but struggle with a little bit of sin. Isn't that completely contrary to what the Bible tells us? Doesn't Paul quote in Romans that none are righteous, no, not one, that nobody seeks good, nobody seeks God? So, in reality, we're very bad by default unless we have been rescued and our sin condition has been dealt with by the ultimate healer. And so not only is physical affliction needing to be dealt with by a holy God, but our spiritual affliction, our spiritual condition. And so when Paul writes this, I think he's referring to both conditions, the spiritual and the physical. Yes, he's been shipwrecked, he's been in jail, he's been uh, beaten, 
all of these things, but he also recognizes that Jesus has healed him spiritually as well. And he says that there's two reasons, essentially, why he speaks of God's glory. There's two results of him praising the name of God, and those are in verses 14 and 15. The first reason is going to be for a future or eternal reason. He says, we speak of God's greatness in healing us because we know that he has raised the Lord Jesus, who will also raise us and you also and present us with you. Well, that's future for us, isn't it? That's a future result of what is going to happen to the believer. That we are going to be raised just like Jesus was raised, and we're going to be presented alongside Paul and all of believers with Jesus to the Holy Father. How cool is that? We're going to be raised just like him. Because he rose first, we also shall get new bodies. That's pretty cool. And then he gives us a second reason, which is a little bit more practical, a more immediate result of speaking of the glory of God. In verse 15, For all things are for your sakes, that the grace which is spreading to more and more people may cause the giving of thanks to abound to the glory of God. In other words, when we've been afflicted, and when we praise God as the one who has healed us and put us back together and keeps us from total destruction, and we speak of his greatness, we speak of his glory and his goodness, this is what happens. In a practical and immediate sense, others are hearing about the goodness of God and they're being saved. The glory of God is abounding as a result of us speaking. And so that's a very immediate and current result for Paul and the church in Corinth, and all of the, the other churches in the region, right? But it's also applicable to us today, right? So our resurrection with Jesus, it will be a future thing. But when we speak of God's goodness now, and his salvation from our circumstances, and we share it with others, God is glorified now. The glory to God abounds when we speak to others. And so... Are we motivated for these same two reasons? Do we think about this kind of stuff when, when we consider the fact that we're going to get this great new body, we're going to be raised with Jesus just like he was raised, is that an opportunity and a motivator for us to celebrate? Even though it hasn't happened yet, we can be assured that it's going to happen. Paul uses here in this uh, his vocabulary, um, knowing, he says, um, Ido or Edo. Oftentimes you guys hear us refer to um, gnosko, which we, we tell you and remind you that is a very practical, experiential knowledge. To know something because you've experienced it and, and you know practically. Well, Ido or Edo is a, a different kind of knowledge. It's an intellectual and by intuition and it's a result of being a child of God. In other words, we can know that we will be raised like Jesus and with Jesus because God has told us that. And we can trust that it's true. No, we have not experienced it yet. But we know that it's true because that's what God has promised. And so even though that hasn't happened for us yet, we can still celebrate it now and others can be turned to the Lord Jesus as a result. So are we motivated like Paul was? Sometimes maybe. Sometimes maybe we would do a disservice to... uh, to God when we don't celebrate and we don't share about the things that he has rescued us from. I think it's important here when we are closing our services and we're 
uh, sharing prayer requests, that we also share our praise reports and we remind each other and inform each other how God has answered some of the prayer requests that we've been praying for, right? That's important. Because it strengthens all of us and God is glorified. The second section we're going to look at this morning is verses 16 through 18. He says, Therefore, we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory, far beyond all comparison. And while we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. He says in verse 16, Therefore we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. Remember the kind of audience and the culture that was taking place in Corinth? It's very, very melting pot, very multicultural. Lots of commerce kind of coming through the area. And we said when we started out our look at Second uh, Corinthians that the culture prided itself on knowledge, on wealth, status, your position in society, your um, oration skills, a lot of very superficial and material aspects, right? And we even said that Paul was likely looked down upon because he didn't operate by the same motivations that the others did, that other teachers and leaders. He didn't necessarily look super glamorous. He may not have come in with this perfected wardrobe, And guess what? He probably started to show a lot of wear and tear on his body as a result of the persecution and the physical affliction that he had received because of proclaiming the name of Jesus Christ throughout the region. Now think about your own bodies for a moment and how from time to time you have a particular ailment or something that is just kind of plaguing you, right? And you're like, man, I really wish this would go away. I really wish... I could get this healed. Think about what his physical body started to look like over time after being imprisoned, shipwrecked, beaten. He's probably looking pretty rough. He's probably showing some wear. He worked with his hands. He was a tent maker also. So can you imagine what some of his naysayers and accusers may have said about him? Well, look at that Paul. I mean, look at how disheveled he is. Look at how rough around the edges he is. And he makes this statement here. He says, even though our outer man is decaying, even though we're experiencing and and life is getting rough for us physically, he says, every single day, I'm being renewed on the inside because of Christ Jesus. The Holy Spirit who resides in me is renewing my spirit And day by day, as I live with Jesus, I am maturing in such a way that it's causing me to be renewed. That's pretty cool. That's true of us as well. Look at our look at our logo. This is pretty neat, okay? This is like multifaceted, if you will. This image, this graphic, has dual purpose. Right? It's, it's a Bible and the Word of God being opened up. And at the same time, it has this butterfly type of motif as well. Is not the butterfly the quintessential illustration and example of being renewed? I mean, look at what a caterpillar looks like. 
they're kind of rough looking, right? I mean, they're they're not the most glamorous looking animal. You know, they're kind of pudgy sometimes. They eat to to fill themselves up before they go into this chrysalis. The chrysalis is kind of whatever looking. Probably in some respects you could say it gets worse looking before it gets better. But then what culminates and what manifests out of that chrysalis and from that caterpillar is one of the most beautiful creatures we have. Think about that. What an amazing transformation that we get to see just in the example of a butterfly. And so yet our outer man, while it is decaying, we are being renewed daily by God's Holy Spirit. Funny. Um, <laughs> I was going to use this as an illustration. When, when I uh, when I go into the bank for a loan, I always go in nice and presentable, nice and polished, and and all all wrapped up because you want to look like you don't actually need it, right? You put on a facade. You don't want to go in there looking all disheveled and like like really, really um, pleading and um, depraved. You want to kind of go in there all nice and buttoned up and put on a great show and, and kind of sit there in front of them and go, well, you know, um, we'd, we'd like to have it, but, you know, if, if you want to give it to us, that's great. If not, that's okay, too. You know, you have to look like you don't need it, right? You have to kind of put on the outside Maybe or maybe what's not happening on the inside. There's a focus on the material and not necessarily on the spiritual. The Corinthians were super, super focused on the material, but not necessarily on the spiritual. And as Paul is revealing why he is adequate be a fragrant aroma for God, one of the points he is making for all of us and for the church in Corinth is that he doesn't focus on the material, he focuses on the spiritual. And he doesn't consider that looking the part is as important as preaching the part. Does that make sense? Philippians 2, 5 and 6. Paul said this about Jesus. Having this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. He became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so Paul reveals that in the person of Jesus and in his ministry and his obedience to go to the cross and die on our behalf, he exhibited what it means to follow God's will and not focus on the material and the circumstantial, but to simply obey. Did Jesus not have the right to basically promote who he was? 
and to basically come down off the cross when he was challenged. He is God. He had more right and more authority than anybody to exercise his power and to put his reputation first, and yet he said, I'm not going to do that. I know who I am in the triune Godhead, and I am here to do the will of the Father. To not celebrate my status, but rather exhibit obedience to the triune Godhead, die on a cross, and be raised from the dead so that we might be saved. So how often is that our motivation? How often do we choose to set aside maybe the rights that we have in favor of obedience to God? To set aside what we think might be priority or important materially because we're focusing on the spiritual. How often do we find ourselves maybe choosing to get even with somebody because practically and naturally we're told that's the thing to do. But in reality, what we should be doing is having the mind of Christ, as Paul says in Philippians. Have this attitude, have this mind, which is not on the material, but to be obedient for the glory of God. Look at verse 1 of chapter 5. Our third section this morning says, For we know that if the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands eternal in the heavens. Isn't this great? We're finally to an architectural section in the Bible. I've been looking forward to this. They're hard to find, but they're in here. (laughs) For, for, For indeed, in this house... We groan, longing to be clothed with our dwellings from heaven. Inasmuch as we, having put it on, shall not be found naked. For indeed, while we are in this tent, we groan, being burdened because we do not want to be unclothed, but to be clothed, in order that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Now he who prepared us for this very purpose is God, who gave to us the Spirit as a pledge. Therefore, being always of good courage and knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. We are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. Therefore, also we have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. So if we go back to verse 1 here, it says, For we know that if the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, we have a building from God, a house not made with human hands. Um, So a more literal Greek translation, like perfectly, would be, earthly house of our tent. And Personally, I've read here from the New American Standard, but I don't really like the way the New American Standard says it. Maybe as well as like the NET says. The NET says, "Our earthly house, comma the tent we live in." I think that's a slightly better rendition. And what's interesting about that is 
that um, the term house has sort of this idea of just dwelling, whereas tent refers specifically to uh, more of an architectural type of application. In other words, a, a literal tent, if you will, a hut, something of temporary nature. And what's fascinating about this is we know that throughout the Bible and throughout Scripture, uh, the concept of a tent or a hut or a temporary tabernacle is used. We see it a lot in the Old Testament, and we see some metaphorical references to tent or hut or tabernacle with regards to the human body in the New Testament as well. Think about the Israelites as they were wandering around in the wilderness God had them fashion tabernacles or tents for themselves as well as a tabernacle which was temporary in nature for the priests and for God to dwell in. And the reason for that was because they were constantly on the move. It says as the cloud would move, as God directed them to pack up and go, they would pack up and go and they would follow God's leading. And they might camp somewhere for two days or they might camp somewhere for a year. And the reason being is it was constantly temporary until they occupied the promised land. There was a temporary nature. Remember when King David said it was not good for God to dwell temporarily? He wanted a physical permanent house for God to dwell in. David desired to build a permanent temple for God. Remember when Jesus said, tear down this temple and I will rebuild it in three days. Well, he wasn't referring to Solomon's temple, was he? He was referring to himself. He was saying, I am the temple of God. God resides in me. Tear this down and I will raise it up in three days. And so here, Paul is likening and he's adopting this concept of tent, if you will, for our natural mortal bodies that we live in here, earthly bodies, but he's saying these are not our ultimate home. As believers, our spirit is simply housed in this temporary tent, if you will. But he says, I promise you, you're going to get a new body, a new house, a new home in which your spirit is going to dwell in, and it's going to be permanent in nature. The term he uses there for building has much more of an architectural significance, an edifice, a, a permanent structure, if you will. And he says it's not going to be built by human hands. It's not going to be earthly in nature at all. And I think it's fascinating where he says um, that he will tear down this temporary tent that we have the idea there is a specific, um, methodical dismantling, if you will. Another word for that tear down there might be dismantle. There are parts to this body that God is uniquely and, uh, and systematically going to dismantle because they are no longer necessary anymore. Because he's going to build for us a new house, a new body. And it's even in a passive voice. That it's not us who tear down and dismantle our bodies. It happens from the outside. It is something that God will do. And, and look at, um, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Paul says this in a very similar but slightly different way. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 50. To 54. You might remember this when we studied this a few years ago. He says, Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and 
blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable, and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. Kind of a similar way, a little bit of a tongue twister there, but a similar way of saying that God is not necessarily going to take our perishable earthly tent and allow us to inherit the kingdom of God and occupy heaven with that because it doesn't apply. It doesn't work. It's a new operating system in heaven. He's going to give us a new imperishable body that is not flesh and bone. That's going to be a beautiful thing, friends. We had, a, we had an event in our building on Friday evening, and, and there was a DJ there, and this DJ brought in this uh, piece of equipment that had two turntables, right? And he did his normal thing. But it wasn't like the technology of old, when DJs used to bring in two record players, and you had a vinyl physical record in this hand and a physical vinyl record in this hand and you put one here and one here and then you would mix accordingly and you'd tweak scratch you'd go, wicka, wicka. okay so what he had was a digital board with two wheels that sort of represented the concept of records and I got to talking to him and I said how do you like this and he says I, I like it and, and he's a younger kid and I could tell he's probably never even worked with the old stuff. And I said, do you know how to use vinyl? And he says, nope. I said, so if somebody brought you know, vinyl in here for you and handed it to you, he goes, uh, yeah, I wouldn't know what to do with it. He goes, I would, I'd stare at it. And he goes, not a chance. It's two similar concepts, but completely different technology. The record, the vinyl, the old school way of doing it, scratches, it wears, it cracks, it degrades over time, it doesn't have the permanency. Okay? This new DJ equipment is digital, there's no loss, it works completely different. It's a completely different system. And you can't take an old record and put it on this new DJ platform because it just won't work. There's no needle, there's no technology, it doesn't work the same way. And so Paul's revealing that our old bodies, these, these earthly tents are of a certain technology that doesn't apply in the new system of heaven. Doesn't work. They're frail. He said last week they're like earthen pots, clay pots. They, they've got problems. They're limited. But when we get to heaven, we get a new imperishable body where our soul is going to reside in a building not built by human hands and it is going to be perfect for that new system. And we will praise Jesus for eternity. And it's going to be a beautiful beautiful thing and he's going to take this same concept of getting a new body but he's going to slightly shift this metaphor when he starts referring to a, uh, the idea of being naked and uh, versus clothed in verses 2 through 5 he says for indeed in this house we groan according uh, longing to be clothed uh, with our dwelling from heaven inasmuch as we having put it on shall not be found naked 
For indeed, while we are in this tent, we groan, being burdened, because we do not want to be unclothed, but to be clothed. Um, he shifts this rhetoric, if you will, to this new metaphor of our presence with Jesus in our new house, in our new body, being clothed, whereas present day, he likens it to being unclothed. In other words, <clears throat> this is inadequate and it causes us to feel a certain way when we have the knowledge and when we know that we're destined for something greater. Think about the industry that has evolved for weight loss. There is an entire industry that has been created, billions and billions of dollars, that is predicated upon the frustration that we have with our self-image. We don't like what our bodies look like oftentimes, naked. Except for Mirren. Currently, Mirren will take her clothes off and make a concerted effort to come up and run upstairs and run through the house so that everybody can see. Okay. Um, she stares at herself in the mirror. She rubs her belly like a Buddha. Um, does not care whatsoever about being unclothed. And I bring that up because she has not learned or she has not acquired the shame that we all have when we are unclothed. Genesis, in the garden, it said that their eyes were opened and they felt shame when they recognized that they were naked. And so Paul's adopting the same concept and he's saying, when you're naked, you feel a certain way. Something's missing. One, you probably don't like maybe your own self-image. You're a little self-conscious about it. You also understand that something's not right. There, there should be a covering. There should be a completeness. And you realize that you're destined for something more. And he's saying, when we know as believers that what we've got coming and what we are to inherit when we see Jesus face to face is so much better that now there's a longing while we still reside here on earth in this fleshly meat suit, there is, there is a knowledge or there is a feeling of inadequacy that we are limited and we are, and that we are, we are unclothed. We're exposed. Because we know there's something more. Because we know this is not the end. And one of the reasons we know this is because God has placed His Spirit in us. Verse 5, now he who prepared us for this very purpose is God who gave to us the Spirit as a pledge. He says, prepared for us this very purpose. Well, I think one of the things he's saying when he says prepare for us this very purpose is the reason we are knowledgeable and the reason we have an understanding about nakedness, if you will, is because God has, or I should say, inadequacy because we have not inherited our new body yet. Is because God has placed His Spirit in us as a pledge. And God's Holy Spirit is the one who whispers to us and transforms our hearts day by day. He renews our inner man daily, as Paul said previously. And He's the one that reminds us that this is not all there is. 
this life, this side of heaven, is not our ultimate home. This is not our promised land. So when he says that he has prepared for us this very purpose, the purpose is this knowledge, this understanding, that there's so much more coming. And Paul says, that excites us. That makes us happy. We can't wait. But at the same time, it creates in us a longing and at times a frustration about still being here. But he says, therefore, being always of good courage and knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. We walk by faith, not by sight. We are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. (laughs) He's reminding us here that he's adequate as we started out four weeks ago. In part, because he has a home which is eternal. He understands that as believers in Christ Jesus, this is not our home. And so, while we are here, he says, we're going to live accordingly. For the time that I'm going to remain here on this side of heaven, I'm going to live as though I'm a citizen of eternity. And he gives us a couple of points here. He says, since my residency, if you will, is ultimately in heaven, this is how I'm going to live. Verse 6, he says, uh, that they are always of good courage. Since my residency is ultimately in heaven, I'm going to live this way. Verse 7, I'm going to walk by faith, not by sight. I'm not going to be driven by materialism, but rather my faith. I'm not going to be driven by what I see, but rather what I know to be true in Christ Jesus. Verse 8, he says, Because I have a home that is eternal, I'm going to be motivated to live with good courage, and I am going to prefer to be with the Lord Jesus while I am here, but I'm still going to operate as His ambassador, as His representative. Verse 9, I am going to live in a way that is pleasing to God. Whether He has taken me home, or whether I remain here for a time, I'm going to live in a way that's pleasing to God. Is that true of us? Is that our motivation? He says in verse 10, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Now, think about his accusers as we kind of pull this all together. Do you think the Judaizers of the time, Paul's accusers and the false teachers, do you think they were motivated by being judged by Jesus? Shoot, they didn't even recognize Jesus as Messiah. They aren't going to have a concept of eternal judgment and standing before him and having to give account for everything that they've done and said. And so one of the ways Paul differentiates himself and sets himself apart from his accusers and the false teachers is to say, 
we're motivated to please God. And one of the reasons we want to please God now as we live on this side of heaven is because we know that when we get to heaven and when we see Him face to face, we're going to have to give an account for everything that we've said and done. Look at the world today, the secular world who are non-believers, and even some believers, but do they have a fear or a reverence or an understanding that at some point in eternity they're going to have to give an account for everything that they're saying and doing? No. And I don't believe Paul shares this with us, and I don't believe he says that, that this is my motivation. He's not saying that we live to please God because we are fearful and we're scared and we have this judgment hanging over us. He's not walking around paranoid about what he's saying and doing. He's simply saying that this is going to take place. And this is part of what sets me apart from others is that this is important to me. See, there's a difference between living to please God because you're completely and utterly thankful and grateful for what He's done on your behalf compared to walking around trying to make sure that your life measures up and that you're keeping some sort of a ledger sheet or you're paranoid and scared of the Day of Judgment Should we have reverence for that? Absolutely. Should that be important to us? It absolutely should be. But if that's the means by which you choose to do things, it's going to be really frustrating life and you're going to get really worn out. But if we're motivated in thanksgiving and gratitude for what Jesus has done, that all takes care of itself. We have friends and we know people who can't wait to leave this life in part because they're frustrated and they find it incredibly cumbersome here. There's some truth to that. But we should be about our Father's business while we are here. We should not want to be with Jesus because we simply hate this side of heaven. You see the difference? And so, Paul's defense this morning reveals some truths for us as believers. He says that we will all be raised like Jesus and we should celebrate this truth now. Even though it is something future, we can celebrate it now because we know that God is a promise keeper. The second thing he shared with us is that we don't lose heart and we don't focus on the temporary afflictions that we experience now. Didn't you find it interesting that in verses 7 through 10, he talked about, of chapter 4, a lot of affliction, a lot of hardship that he's experienced. And we know elsewhere in Scripture that he's been put through a lot of stuff. But then... In verse 17, he says, For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight. Isn't that kind of fascinating? That in one sense, he's highlighting how much persecution he's received because it's evidence that he's a true representative of Jesus Christ. 
So in one sense, he's really building up and going, man, look at all this stuff I go through. But then shortly after, he goes, but I consider it nothing. It's light affliction compared to the glory that we are going to receive. This pales in comparison. And I love that. It pales. The third thing, we should always be of good courage knowing that this is not our permanent home. There should be a a longing in our hearts for the day when we get to go home permanently. But we shouldn't treat it as an escape, but rather a promised reward for what Christ Jesus has done on our behalf. We don't live and operate out of fear. We should operate because we rejoice in who Jesus Christ is. So, our first proof from Paul, we are adequate because we don't peddle the word of God. We are adequate because we are ministers of a new covenant, proof number two. Proof number three, we are adequate because we have a clear conscience before God and man. And proof number four this morning, we are adequate because we have a home which is eternal. We're not motivated by the material, natural things. We operate not by sight and not by things seen, but by faith. Those are the truths that we, as believers, should embrace as well and live like we're worthy and we're adequate to be a fragrant aroma for God everywhere we go, that we may be used by Him to spread the knowledge of Him, that He may be glorified. Amen?